Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast in the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War history group. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website, westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 5th of September 2022 and this is episode 268. On this week's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Dr Vivian Welpt about her research into the life and legacy of Great War poet and author Richard Aldington. Viv spoke to me from her home in England. Viv, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Richard Aldington and the Great War? Right. Um, yes. Um, uh, I was a, an English teacher and um, I came to an interest in the First World War through teaching its literature, basically, and taking my A-level students to the Western Front and starting to read and understand more and more. And um, when I retired in 2006, um, I did an MA in war studies at King's College London. <laughs> and um, I also joined the Guild of Battlefield Guides and became an accredited guide. Um, so that's you know where I am as regards the First World War. As for Audington, um, I was very much aware of how moved my students were by his war poetry, particularly his poetry about the aftermath, about surviving the war or attempting to survive the war. And then I read The Remarkable Death of a Hero, which I think we're going to come to later. Yes. Hmm. So that's me and that's my interest in the war and in Aldington. <laughs> so I wonder whether we could start with Aldington's early life, his childhood, parental family and education. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, because in fact, they're enormously important to his development, both personally and professionally. Um, he grew up in a middle class family. He was the oldest of four children, but it was an incredibly dysfunctional um, upbringing. Um, it included the fact that both his school education and later his attempt at university education um, were disrupted by um, his father's bankruptcy. Um, something that would make him bitter really for the rest of his life. And I also came to think as I was writing the biography um, that he was sexually abused as a child. Um, so all those things I think um, would affect his ability to form lo long re lasting relationships and also to cope with the aftermath of the war. So what did Aldington do in terms of his professional life and what was his personal life like for Well. He was actually enormously successful, having had to drop out of um, university without completing his first year. Um, he met two very important uh, American poets living in England. One was Ezra Pound, um, who started the Imagist movement uh, and involved Aldington in that. And the other was Hilda Doolittle, HD, um, whom, with whom he fell in love. And they were married in 1913 when Aldington was 21 years old. Um, so it was an incredibly happy and fulfilling uh, kind of experience that those few years, except, of course, that having decided that he would earn his living for the rest of his life by his writing, um, he was never going to be financially secure. Sounds a bit like my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so what exactly did he write before the First World War? And, and was he re relatively well known for his literary endeavours? 
Um, reasonably well known, I think. Um, he contributed to an imagist anthology that Ezra Pound brought out. He also published a book of his, his verse himself, um, uh, his imagist verse, and um, he became the literary editor of, um, of a journal, um, a small journal, but quite influential called The Egoist. And he was beginning to make a name for himself as a translator and a critic. And what exactly was the images movement? I just sort of thinking that my, my right. literary criticism um, is pretty weak and my, my listeners probably, or our <laughs> listeners may be similarly um, ignorant. Right. Uh, well, of course, um, it's not much sort of thought, thought about these days, but it was really the beginnings of modernism. Um, it was an attempt to produce poetry that was succinct and concise and concrete, that used the language of every day and uh, significantly was written in free verse rather than rhymed and metric um, verse. Yeah. And was this a relatively sort of, uh, I suppose, a, a trend or a fashion that obviously literature goes through and it sort of breaks away from the Edwardian and late Victorian sort of romantic ideas? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And so we get to 1914. What happens? Uh, what does Aldington do on the outbreak of war? Why does he join up? And could you also just tell us how old he was when um, when the war broke out in 1914? Yes. So in 1914, he was 22. Um, and he didn't do anything to start with. He carried on his life as normal. He didn't feel committed to the war. And in fact, when he did join up in 1916, he was what we refer to as a later tested Derby man. In other words, he got in there just before he would have been conscripted as a married man anyway. Um, he still felt not a great deal of commitment, um, but he didn't feel that in all conscience he could stay out but take the conscientious objection route perhaps uh, when he you know he knew people who were fighting and in some cases dying Gaudia Breschka was a friend of his the um, uh, French sculptor and artist and he'd been killed in 1915 um, so yes yeah, so he did go in um, and he went out to the western front in January 1917 um, as a private in um, the 11th Leicesters, which was a pioneer battalion, and they were on the Lens Luce um, sector. Um, he returned home in May, so he had four or five months, which are vividly described in Death of a Hero, and then back to England to train and be commissioned as an officer. So he was finally rushed out to the Western Front in April 1918. Um, he was in the 9th Royal Sussex, and they had been really, really mauled in Operation Michael. They fought about four defensive actions um, in a period of about two weeks. Um, so he went out there and initially was back on the same front, um, in the same sector, Lons and Len, uh, Lons and Luce. Um, then he was sent on an intelligence and signals training course, and he finally rejoined his battalion for the 1918 Battle of Cambrai. Um, as the battalion signals officer. And the, the battalion um, was involved in the um, occupation of the villages to the north northeast of Cambrai. And um, then finally in the Battle of the Sambre, the taking of the Ronelle River, the crossing. And they reached the Mons Mauberge Road on 9th of November. But he wasn't demobbed until February 19, much to his frustration. So that was his war experience. And did he leave any sort of letters or diaries from his war experience? Yes, um, he had a long correspondence with HD. Um, I'll come to that in a minute. But, it, you know, at that point, their relationship was in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and um, so there are his letters 
to her from that period. Uh, yeah. And of course, Death of a Hero, which, although fiction, is very, very closely modelled on his experience. So we come to the we come to February 1919. He is demobilised along, obviously, along with many other millions of other men. What does he do um, to sort out his sort of, I suppose, got earning earning a living? And how does the war affect his sort of personal relationship with HD? I think you've alluded to that already. Yes, yes. I mean, basically, he felt his life was ruined. He was in a very traumatised state and he came back to see um, those who'd stayed in civilian life being very successful, about which he felt very bitter. And um, of course, you know, some of them were American. T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound were Americans living in England. So the war really had not touched them at all. Um, He was too old at 27. Uh, to retrain for a trade or profession. Um, His writing, which is what gave him a living, was not happening. He'd lost his kind of creative powers. Uh, He felt that he'd probably lost them permanently. Um, And worst of all, of course, the relationship with HD was destroyed. When he came back to England um, in 1917, he'd flung himself into a rather passionate affair. I think it was a kind of carpe diem mood. He was sure he was going to get killed. And HD had responded by a relationship of her own, which had left her pregnant. Um, And given that they lost a child, a stillborn child in 1915, something they'd never really dealt with, um, it was the end of the relationship. Um, And he was to regret that for the rest of his life, um, although he did have other relationships. Um, She was snatched up, there's no better word for it, um, by a young woman who was the daughter of Sir John Elliman, the shipping magnate, so very, very wealthy, and HD remained with her for the rest of her life till she died in 1961, Um, so that was that for Aldington. Um, He retired to the Berkshire countryside, Um, he eked out a living translating and working as the French reviewer, French literature reviewer on the Times Literary Supplement. But in 1929, he abandoned England. He never lived here again, uh, went to France and in about 20 weeks wrote Death of a Hero, this kind of blisteringly angry uh, novel about the war, um, which he says was a process of catharsis. But I don't think it actually ever worked as that. Yeah. So he spent he spent the Second World War in America working as a screenwriter in Hollywood. But after that, he went back to France and never came to England. Mm -hmm. So I, before we get on to Death of a Hero, because obviously that's the work he's most well known for, he obviously wrote a tremendous amount of other stuff as well during the 1920s. What sort of um, subjects did he cover during that period? He wrote um, a long poem called A Fool in the Forest, which was very much about the war, about the aftermath of war, and a collection of poems called Exile, which says it all, doesn't it, really? Um, but other than that, it was kind of hack work he was doing, really. Um, he became a novelist through Death of a Hero. Which brings us neatly on to Death of a Hero. So right. what, what is this work about? Why did he write it when he did? And what sort of impact did it have? Yes, well, it, it, it was true of quite a lot of um, combatant writers, wasn't it? That it took them a decade to decide that actually they got to write about it, <laughs> that it wasn't going to go away <laughs> and that they must write. So people like Sassoon and Blunden and, you know, lots of people, Manning um, and so on. Um, so it was that. It was that process of writing out all, the, all that anger and, and so on. Um, and it was one of the earliest of the war books. And it was a bestseller. It was absolutely sensational because it is it's the angriest of them all, I think. Um, 
but it's not angry about the military leadership. It's angry about the Edwardian society and politics and the values that actually led us into the war. And that's what he feels most bitter about. And the other thing that made it a short term success was something sensational. Um, There were large passages that his publishers insisted had got to be expurgated. And he fought that. And in the end, he he had to accept it. So he insisted on having asterisks put in wherever there was a word or passage that had been taken out, which, of course, caused great curiosity amongst his readers as to what those words and passages were. And I think one of the saddest things is that in 2014, when Penguin Classics brought out a new edition, they went for the expurgated text along with its asterisks, along with the frequent use of, of the term mucking instead of the F word. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's it's strange that they made that decision. Really. It's a very modernist work um, in that um, it flits between the viewpoint of his protagonist, George Winterbourne, and a narrator. It uses all kinds of types of text, snatches of songs, um, trench signs, um, onomatopoeic um, descriptions of artillery fire, um, um, uh, poems, all kinds of things. Um, But it's nevertheless, it's not a fragmented narrative, it's sequential. The first part of it deals with George Winterbourne's childhood, basically Aldington's childhood. Um, It's very satirical. Um, The second part deals with those years in London as an artist before the war. And there are some very satirical portraits in there of people like Pound and Elliot and D.H. Lawrence and Ford Maddox Ford. And then the third part is quite different. It's an account of his war experience and it's extremely moving and bitter and realist. Um, It's very effective. Uh, In fact, um, it moves between this sort of declamatory style and this very evocative, almost poetic style. Um, can I read you a couple of ex- very short extracts to, yeah, <laughs> right. So here's the more declamatory style. Uh, the narrator says, you the war dead, I think you died in vain. I think you died for nothing, a blather, a humbug, a newspaper stunt, a politician's rant, but at least you died. You did not reject the sharp, sweet shock of bullets, the sudden smash of the shell burst, the insinuating agony of poison gas. You've got rid of it all. You chose the better. And then in contrast, this is a description of when uh, Winterbourne comes back as an officer to the Lawrence front and he walks up Hill 70, which is now, of course, in Allied hands. At dawn one morning when it was misty, he walked over the top of Hill 91, where probably nobody had been by day since its capture. The heavy mist brooded about him in a strange stillness, scarcely a sound on their immediate front, though from north and south came the vibration of furious drum fire. The ground was a desert of shell holes and torn rusty wire, and everywhere lay skeletons in steel helmets, still clothed in the rags of sodden khaki or field grey. Here a fleshless hand still clutched a broken rusty rifle, there a gaping decaying boot showed the thin, knotty footbone. Alone in the white, curling mist, drifting slowly past like wraiths of the slain, with a far-off thunder of drum fire beating the air, Winterbourne stood in frozen silence and contemplated the last achievements of civilised. Gives you some idea of the tone and atmosphere. And how do you feel about his work and death of a hero as an English teacher? Um, It's a very flawed work in one sense, in that he lets his anger 
go away with him <laughs> and, um, and it does rant in places. Um, but the wit um, and the satire, um, though shocking, is actually quite entertaining. <laughs> and, uh, and that last section, the section about combatant experience, is really very, very powerful. It's much more understated um, and realist. And it does give you a very strong sense of what it was like to be there. And what impact do you think his works had today? Well, I think I need to get on to a question you, I think you were going to ask me about how his um, experience of war shaped his creative yeah, outputs after the war, um, because that will cast light on that. Um, uh, during the 20s, there were the two works I mentioned. At the end of the decade, there was Death of a Hero and also a very moving collection of short stories about the war, but also about after the war. Um, and then he went on to write novels after Death of a Hero, all of which reflected on a society that had been through the war. Um, and then that vein dry, dried up and he became a biographer. Um, in the 1940s, while he was in America, he wrote a very successful biography of the Duke of Wellington. But in 1953, he published a biography of T.E. Lawrence, and it was a very controversial, very critical biography. Um, and basically, it destroyed his reputation and hence his livelihood, because his books just vanished from the shelves of um, the bookshops. Um, and his take on Lawrence was a direct result, I think, of his bitterness about the war. Um, he wrote in the preface, I have tried to give the evidence in this book fairly and in such a way that it can be instantly verified, though not without some indignation that such a man should have been given the fame and glory of the real heroes of 1914-18, by which, of course, he meant those who had fought and died on the Western Front. It was the centrality uh, in Lawrence's work of you know, the, the Middle East um, and his own achievements and those of the Arabs um, that Audington reject. Um, but Lawrence was a hero. <laughs> he was the hero of the First World War at that stage in the 50s. Um, since then, a lot of biographers have come round a little bit to Audington's way of thinking, but then it was absolutely shocking and um, he became a pariah. And his reputation has never really been restored. Interesting, it had. Led by Little Heart, the, you know, the campaign against him was, <laughs> was absolutely you know, overpowering. And when did Altingdon finally die? 1962, um, by which time he'd written several further biographies, but was re had really struggled to make a living. The irony really is that the person who helped him to keep his head above water and, and remain financially secure um, was Briar, Winifred Elliman, yes, who did it out of her affection for HD. Um, he and HD entered into a correspondence after the Second World War, a daily correspondence almost, for the rest of their lives. Bordington had meanwhile, he had three medium-term relationships, the last of which was a marriage which produced a daughter, um, but when his wife left him, he brought his daughter up on his own um, in very poor circumstance. And my final question is, where can people learn more about Aldington? But more importantly, where can they learn more about your work on Aldington? <laughs> right. Um, I've got a website, uh, vivianwelpton.co.uk, very originally. <laughs> and there is my two-volume biography of Aldington. Uh, Richard Aldington, poet, soldier and lover, and Richard Aldington, novelist, biographer and exile. And they're published by Lutterworth. Vivian, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. I've enjoyed doing it. <laughs>
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>